We have a lot to get to tonight, including the major Category 3 hurricane currently barreling toward the state of Florida. As we prepare to see what kind of toll that might take on Floridians, the January 6th committee has postponed its next hearing, which was set to take place tomorrow. The committee tweeted earlier today that in light of Hurricane Ian bearing down on parts of Florida, we have decided to postpone tomorrow's proceedings. We're praying for the safety of all those in the storm's path. We will have more on both Hurricane Ian and the latest on the January 6th investigation later this hour. But we start tonight with the major political battle taking place across the country. As of today, we are just six weeks out from this year's midterms. Despite economic and historical trends that should favor Republicans, this election is shaping up to be closer than anyone expected, thanks in large part to Republican extremism in states across the country. From the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and subsequent state abortion bans, to election denialism, to cruel political stunts using asylum seekers, to book bans and censorship in the classroom, Republicans are executing on a radical agenda. Those efforts are being led by red state governors, governors like Texas's Greg Abbott and Florida's Ron DeSantis, men who are pushing this extremism while they raise their own political profiles and jockey to inherit Trump's mantles as lead, mantle as leaders in the next generation of Republican presidential hopefuls. On the other side of that fight are a handful of Democratic governors, the people who are in many ways leading the charge against radical Republican policies. Chief among them is California Governor Gavin Newsom. After surviving a recall election last year, Governor Newsom has come out swinging hard against Republican governors and stoking a few presidential campaign rumors of his own. The California governor has put up billboards in Republican-controlled states attacking their leader's extreme abortion policies. He's running ads in Ron DeSantis' Florida saying freedom is under attack in the Sunshine State, and he's urging residents to move to California. This weekend, Governor Newsom took a trip down to Greg Abbott's Texas to continue his campaign of calling out Republican governors and otherwise making himself a thorn in the side of the right wing. While he was there, I sat down with him for an interview at a taqueria in Austin, where I asked him about his aggressive new strategy. You talk a lot about going on offense, yeah. and you have involved yourself in the business of Ron DeSantis and Governor Abbott here in Texas. Yeah. What is the point of that, of the billboards? What is the point of, of I'm not going to call it trolling, but it sort of feels like you're trolling Republican Well, they governors. need to be called out. They shouldn't be able to get away with it. They can't claim to be pro-life uh, when they're just pro-birth. They can't claim uh, to embrace and celebrate freedom when they're denied freedom for women and girls and their reproductive rights. They can't attack vulnerable communities without being called out. How do they, how possibly are they being celebrated? and successfully in terms of their political ambitions because they both ascended even further and closer uh, to their reelections as a consequence of their demonization. How are they getting away with that? And so my frustration is, you know, we need to call them out. Yeah. Do you, are you paying attention to what these guys are doing? How many books have been banned here in Texas? 801 books have been banned. Ron DeSantis is arresting elected officials. He's sending SWAT teams with people in the underwear at six in the morning because they registered to vote and voted. Yeah. I mean, that's insane. Think about just that's insane. He went to another state to find migrants and used state money that was intended for unauthorized immigrants, not those seeking legal asylum, and sent them to an island 
and he's being celebrated for that. He's literally rewriting history. Literally. Did you see him the other day try to describe his own version of history as it relates to slavery? It was the American Revolution that caused people to question slavery. No one had questioned it before we decided as Americans that we are endowed by our creator with unalienable rights and that we are all created equal. He doesn't know what he's talking about, except he's successful. And we need to be more assertive to wake folks up. It's not just Mar-a-Lago. It's not just Trump on January 6th. Because, I mean, we all hope that Trump goes to the Ashman of history and we could turn the page on Trump. But then what? I mean, Trumpism, it's just a whole nother level. These guys are at another level yeah. of demonization. I mean, they're at another level of implementing and applying that demonization through legislation. Trump has to be blushing with some of the stuff that some of these Republican governors have gotten away with. You filed a, 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 an appeal, basically, a notice with the DOJ saying you think that there should be criminal investigations relating to the migrant stunt. Do you, yeah. do you think that DeSantis and, and Abbott could be criminally charged for well, this? I don't know if they could be criminally charged. I grew up in a different world, yeah. a little old-fashioned about accountability. Uh, but, I mean, by every definition, uh, he broke state law as it relates to the utilization of those state dollars. Uh, the question is, did he break federal law? It's sick. It's, I mean, <laughs> I'm a parent. Man, I mean, how, how do I explain that to my... Forget being Democrat, Republican, us versus... It's like, what? Someone did that? They would do that to kids? To other people's kids? to human beings, what kind of person does that? The NRSC is sending out emails saying, which state would you like migrants shipped to next? Air DeSantis, you know, this bravado, you know, this toughness. You know, it's all BS, they're bullies. Nothing more than bullies, rank bullies. Why the desire to have these strong men? It is it a desire for autocracy? Bill Clinton said it decades ago, right, when we got shellacked to one of the midterms, said, given the choice, the American people always support strong and wrong versus weak and right. And there was truth then about that. There's truth today about that. This S for demonization has political benefits. It worked. It works situationally. And that's, that's what's so sad. But now it's weaponized at a whole other level with this feedback loop of social media. And then, of course, the propaganda networks and the anger machine, which, of course, the right dominates. And we have nothing, respectfully, nothing comparable. My awakening in all this is it's not just about midterms in Congress or 2024, Biden will, Biden won't. It's deeper than that. The rights revolution, what we've taken for granted the last 50 years, is being wiped out in real time, state after state, and they have intention. They're focused. And they will stop at nothing to achieve their goals of rolling back all of these rights, and they're doing it successfully. During our interview, I also asked Governor Newsom about what he thinks Democrats should be doing in this moment to combat Republican policies and push back against the torrent of misinformation that's being pushed out by the right wing. We also discussed some of the pointed criticisms he's directed at his own party. The right wing has been formulating this stuff for decades. They have a structure of leadership that's been incredibly effective. Yeah. And there isn't an analog on the left. No. I, I look at what you did and what you were saying in the wake of the Dobbs decision. You were out there saying, where is the Democratic Party? Where's the party? Why aren't we standing up more firmly, more resolutely? Why aren't we calling this out? How lacking are we at the national level in the Democratic Party? I mean, there's no doubt states are on the front lines of the rights battles. 
period, full stop. And the Supreme Court now has made that crystal clear. We've honed ourselves and focused our energies uh, perhaps more distinctively in that respect. But we have a messaging problem. I really believe it. And you can argue, all right, what are we doing on comprehensive immigration reform? What are we doing on a number of other issues? I'm not going to deny the substantive challenges our party has as well, addressing those tough and vexing issues. It's not just a messaging problem, but a messaging problem that has persisted with our party for years and years, constantly on the defense. We allow these culture wars to take shape, and we consistently are on the back end of them. Eight of the top 10 states with the highest murder rates, all are Republican states. How do Democrats not know that? In fact, it's really nine out of 10. Georgia went for Biden, but it's really a Republican state, or at least a red state. Eight out of 10. And we're losing that message? Crime is higher, as well as taxes here for the average uh, citizen in Texas. It's higher crime, higher violent crime and property crimes than in the state of California. 67% higher gun death rate in Texas. Why don't we push back? Why are we well, why don't why, why, why don't we? I do don't know. In terms of my current point of view, I'm optimistic about our ability to turn this around if we go on the offense. That's why I'm doing the billboards. That's why I'm doing these ads. That's why I'm doing these TV commercials in other states. Take it to them and take it to that damn social media network, whatever that thing's called, True Social, which, by the way, I can't imagine going to be around in one or two more years. <laughs> have you seen a difference since you've started doing this? Since yeah. You, what, what, how, have you, how, have you, how is it impacting I just think, anything? I think we've stretched the debate a little bit. I mean, they're like, oh, look at over there. Hey, well, I'm not that. But now people are leaning. I'm, I'm talking to other governors. And uh, some of my friends, some are becoming closer friends, saying, I wish I could do that. I really like that you did that. Or, oh, I can What are they worried about? Uh, you know, I'm in the middle of election. I got my own issues. I mean, that issue is not. You're nice. in the middle of election. I get it. It's different. You know, there's different politics for me. But increasingly, or, boy, let me just get through November. I really want to talk to you in the transition. Let's go. I mean, I cannot, by the way, on my mother and dad's graves, I cannot tell you the number of elected officials in powerful positions, soon to be, of influence that are ready to go. I think, I think we're, in, we're entering a different, and I, you've seen it with, with Biden. He's moving. Well, he's been willing to yeah. iterate. He's willing. He's, you know, he's done on the policy. But now he recognizes, they've always recognized, but now they're leaning in on the narrative. Well, let, let's talk about that for a second. Biden came out. Uh, a Joe Biden that I think Joe Biden think, did not think he would ever no, see, no. which is Joe Biden standing there talking about how MAGA Republicans, which, by the way, is a lot of Republicans, have become semi-fascists, that they're in the thrall of autocracy, you know, and the after effects of that speech were complicated for Joe Biden, right? I mean, there are Republicans who watch that and said, you have forsaken the grand old party. You're not the, the leader of the entire country. This is outrageous. They fundraised off of it. The more you use pointed language against Republicans, the more you troll them, the more you take it to their doorsteps. I think that's probably good for democratic policies and priorities and, and politics. But what does it do to the ability of anyone to bridge a gap between left and right? Does that even matter anymore? Uh, is that a fool's errand? At the moment is my humble opinion. And I think the president's learned it the hard way. I mean, he's hardwired for a different world, but that world is gone. And he's acknowledged that very publicly on multiple occasions. But I, you're right, I think it's very hard for him because his decency, his honor, his character, his moral persuasion. I mean, he thought all those things, those were tools in his toolkit. It's who he is at his core. He wants to compromise. He wants to find our, our better angels. And he wants to find uh, that sweet spot in terms of advancing our collective vision and values. 
But that's not how the system is designed. That's not what the Supreme Court represents right now. That's not what all these redistricting efforts and the voting suppression efforts represent right now. It's not, not what all the rights that are being rolled back in real time. Boy, my mom was still alive. She'd be very upset with me for leaning in there. I'm just like, I'm in some ways I'm glad she's not. She's like, you just have to model better behavior. Well, we've been doing that and people are losing their rights. People are losing their rights. I can't sit back. You gotta push back. We gotta hold them accountable. And yes, we prepare ourselves for the great reconciliation. And that's to come because we you can't. Think? Really? For no other reason, we can't live like this. And at the end of the day, we run into each other at the grocery store. It's like. But in, and but, you know, but, we see each other at the soccer games. I just wonder if we are going to be sharing the soccer field and the grocery store aisles. I mean, the, the tit for tat between you and Governor Abbott and to some degree you and Governor Sanders is you guys come live over here. You guys live over there. And I wonder if that does worry you, the sorting of people into red states and blue states, which will even further deepen partisan divides. I mean, is that a good outcome for the country? No, it's not a good outcome because at the end of the day, you, you can't wall each other off can't well I mean you just can't I mean if, now you could geofence yourself off on social media and live in that parallel universe uh, but at the end of the day you know we all share the same you know a lot of same things in common right one short life uh, with pretty limited wisdom small world uh, and we're gonna breathe the same air uh, and at the end of the day we're gonna rise and fall together how do you capture that shared humanity how do you bring people back to the things that ties together rather the things than the things that separate us if you also want democrats to go on the offensive and be angry and be motivated by the fear that the walls are closing in and that freedoms we had basically taken for granted for the last 50 years may be evaporating for our eyes i mean we've got a situational responsibility to meet this moment and be as aggressive as possible situation and then we have to have a sustainable mindset in terms of winning these larger debates you can't win fleeting victories at other people's expenses have you talked to desantis or abbott uh, Abbott, where I thanked him a few years ago on multiple occasions for helping us in mutual aid with wildfires, didn't play any politics, and I would never play politics if he ever needed anything along those lines. DeSantis, no. Um, most of the Republican governors have great relationships with, uh, spent time with them. Um, in fact, some of my more close Republican colleagues are Republicans. Same thing some of your best, friend or, uh, best friends are Republican. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, yeah, I love family of Republicans. So, I'm, you know, I've, I've, I've had an interesting life, you know, I mean, in that, in that respect. And, you know, you know, the awkward conversation around uh, an ex-wife. Yes, an ex-wife, Kimberly Guilfoyle, yeah. who's definitely not a Democrat anymore. No. Do you ever talk to her? Nope, not lately. Uh, it must be weird for you. Yeah, of course. So you have, but you, but you also understand, and, and that created, you know, we had a different relationship with Trump when I was governor as well. Yeah. I mean, we had an interesting, not as combative relationship, um, even though we went at it on a lot of issues. We also found ways to get along. So I, I say all that for no other reason. It's essential that we find those spaces but i gotta ask you you're out there you're aggressive yeah. you're 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 practicing a new brand of democratic politics uh. and the people who are the titular heads of the democratic party at the federal level nancy pelosi chuck schumer joe biden white people in their 70s do you think part of the reason that the democratic party hasn't been as responsive and aggressive as it should be is because in part the generational difference between who's leading at the federal level and who needs to be active at the state level no um my hero, Bobby Kennedy, said what the world needs are the qualities of youth, not a time of life, a state of mind, a quality of imagination. Joe Biden has that quality of imagination. Nancy Pelosi does. 
Look what they were able to accomplish the last two years. There's proof, there's demonstrable evidence of that and what they accomplished, what they achieved. Plus, few more political masters than Nancy Pelosi in terms of being able to organize a caucus to get votes. We may never see like this, see anything like this again. We have to broaden that focus and focus on building this party institutionally across the spectrum and develop a more comprehensive narrative where we can take these great policies that we embrace and enjoy and take our vulnerabilities and package them in a way where we can go on the offensive much more collaboratively and aggressively using the tools at our disposal as we build the surround sound and build the apparatus that the other side has done, success leaves clues after all, and reconcile the fact that we are losing the messaging debate broadly, state by state in this country. And one final thing. At the end of our interview, I asked Governor Newsom about his own political ambitions and whether or not his recent offensive against Republicans is a prelude to maybe a future presidential run. Are you running? Are you? Would you ever? Not, no one would you ever. Is this the would you ever? Would you ever? Would you ever? Will you? you? Ever? Do no, you? Is this all part no, of a plan? No. Yeah. Is this all part of a strategy? Well, come on. You're taking billboards yeah. out. You're not. You're definitely increasing I, um, your national profile. It's not the intention. My intention. My intention is to raise attention to these critical issues. Okay. On what's happening in state. I'm just telling. It's you. not my intention. Is not a no. No. So no. I'll just, no. No. We'll no. Take no. That okay. The we'll start. Okay, let, me, let me answer your question. No. And then. No, and then no, 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 okay. no, and then no, and no. How many candidates? Okay, so that's no. a no for Iowa, no, a no for New Hampshire, no, a no and, for and, South Carolina, yeah. a no for Nevada. Okay, no. I'll play so it each time you're in one of those states. <laughs> that's fine. I take where I take what you're saying. I will take it at face no, value for it, now, yeah. Governor. That is what he is saying now. Keep your eyes on Governor Gavin Newsom of California, everyone. We have much more ahead this hour. We're keeping an eye on Hurricane Ian as the storm barrels towards Florida, prompting millions in the state to evacuate. NBC News meteorologist Bill Karens will join us for more on that. But next, a surprising Republican lawmaker has just given his support for a piece of legislation that may very well prevent another January 6th style situation from happening again in Congress. Stay with us. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Now, here is something you don't see every day. If you overconsume political news, as I certainly do, you know that this is an unusual sight. This is Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell joining other senators on the dais at a Senate committee meeting. 
Senate majority and minority leaders do not sit on committees. That's why you almost always only see them speaking from the floor of the Senate. But on rare occasions, when a Senate leader feels strongly enough about a particular bill, he will show up personally to the committee meeting on the bill to show support. And what made today a double rarity is that the bill that Republican leader Mitch McConnell schlepped down to that committee room to support is a bill that was the brainchild of Democrats. This bill aims to prevent future efforts to subvert presidential election results, basically to make it harder to do the kind of stuff Donald Trump tried to pull off on January 6th. When Congress gathered to certify Joe Biden's win on January 6th, Trump's allies in Congress objected to the slates of Biden electors that were submitted by certain states. Trump pushed the theory that Vice President Mike Pence, as the presiding officer that day, could then reject the Biden electors and essentially hand the election to Trump, which Pence refused to do, rightfully. This new bill would reform the 135-year-old Electoral Count Act to make clear that the vice president doesn't have the power to do that, and it would also make it harder for members of Congress to raise objections to a state's set of electors. And this bill has been steadily gaining bipartisan support, and now Mitch McConnell's full-throated blessing today, his appearance in that committee room. It all but assures that it will pass. I will note that there was one vote against this bill today, and it came from none other than Ted Cruz, one of the Republican senators who objected to Biden's slate of electors on January 6th. But except for Senator Cruz, the bill got unanimous bipartisan support from the committee members. And that is something to really focus on. And it is a step toward preventing a repeat of what happened or almost happened in Congress on January 6th. And it comes as the latest trial gets underway for people charged in the attack on the Capitol that day. Jury selection began today in the trial of the leader of the far-right pseudo-paramilitary group, the Oath Keepers. Stuart Rhodes and several of his fellow Oath Keepers are charged with seditious, seditious conspiracy against the United States. Multiple Oath Keepers and tactical gear entered the Capitol that day, and some fought with police. The indictment charges that they had stashes of guns and ammunition just outside Washington, D.C. that day, ready to be deployed, and that Rhodes spent weeks coordinating a plan to use force to keep Trump in office. Obviously, the main question of this trial is whether Rhodes and his co-conspirators will be convicted of seditious conspiracy, which is a serious and rare charge. But there are also questions about what more we may learn on January about January 6th and what happened on that day. Three Oath Keepers have already pleaded guilty to the seditious conspiracy charge and are now cooperating with prosecutors. As just one example of questions that remain, one of those cooperators told prosecutors that he overheard Stuart Rhodes trying to reach Trump through an intermediary on the evening of January 6th, but the person on the other end of the line wouldn't connect Rhodes to the president. What was that about? Washington Post reports that investigators are still asking those Oath Keeper cooperators about their knowledge of any coordination between their group and the others on January 6th. Joining us now is Barry Burke, who served as chief impeachment counsel to the House of Representatives at President Trump's January 6th impeachment trial. Barry, thanks for being here. My pleasure, Alex. So are you confident that through this Oath Keepers trial, we are going to get the information about the connection between these rioters, these seditious actors, and the Trump White House? I'm not confident that we're going to get all the answers because it's an imperfect case where they're just trying to determine whether they can prove seditious conspiracy. But the evidence of the bigger role when January 6th began much Long before January 6th, when Donald Trump is speaking to groups like telling the uh, 
the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. When people like Roger Stone, you saw his video, is closely aligned to the Oath Keepers, to the Proud Boys, and is talking in July about the plan to prevent the peaceful transfer of government. You see the pieces, and part of this defense reaffirms it, that they were there, that Stuart Rhodes was there because the president told him to come, that he thought they might invoke the Insurrection Act. Now, that is not a defense to using violence to interfere with government, not a defense at all, but it does lay the groundwork of how Donald Trump is guilty of a whole litany of crimes based on the facts that we know. What about your line of questioning for Stuart Rhodes? We, we highlighted this, I, this evidence that we have, that Stuart Rhodes was trying to connect with Donald Trump through an intermediary. That intermediary wouldn't connect the two, the president and Stuart Rhodes. What would your questions be for Stuart Rhodes in a, in a trial like this? If I could appear as chief impeachment counsel, my questions would be, who was that intermediary? Was it Roger Stone? What did the president say at the time, President Trump, that caused him to think he should come and use force and commit crimes in order to prevent the peaceful transfer of power? Who are his earlier contacts with? All of these people who surrounded the president and were trying to prevent this transfer of this peaceful transfer of power. What role did they play with the Oath Keepers? How long did these tentacles extend out to other people who were involved? And I think those were the questions I'd ask. If I was the prosecutor, yeah. I would just establish he came here intent on committing violence to prevent the certification of the election. That should be enough for a conviction. What, how does this dovetail with the DOJ's investigation into January 6th? Are they watching this and saying, oh, no, we're like basically creating a checklist? Well, I, I think it is a preview of certain things. There's a whole litany of crimes that they have to consider whether or not to bring against the former president and those around him. The most serious is seditious conspiracy. And they've laid out a, a strategy and a theory that could theoretically apply to a whole host of people. However, there are lesser crimes as well, like interfering with an official proceeding. Mm -hmm. So I think the department is able to look at a case like this and see it as a preview to go up. Typically, the Department of Justice doesn't stop at the low-level people who committed the acts, but the people who planned it, who organized it, who are most directly responsible. The people who said the election was stolen and we have to prevent it, who went and used language of violence knowing a crowd was armed and was their intent to stop it and then intended to march with them to the Capitol. So I think the department has a lot of evidence. And I would tell you, Alex, I think the strongest argument often made, whether it's the Oath Keepers or a former president, is deterrence. And you have people now not only saying that they support overthrowing or interfering with an election, but they're running for office, yeah. serious office on that campaign. So if you don't prosecute a former president where the evidence is overwhelming that he knew he lost the election and sought to prevent the certification of that loss, then everyone is going to feel that they are at liberty to do the same. Well, and it's it is meaningful that we talked about the Electoral Count Act. It's it's an, a tacit acknowledgement that what happened on January 6th must never happen again. And one wonders whether a same group of Republicans will stand up if and when the DOJ pursues a criminal charge against primary actors. I'm not naming any names. Right. I, I do want to ask you as we try to put together a more sort of fulsome picture of what transpired that day. The Secret Service remains kind of to some degree uh, a mystery. What was going on? We don't have the text messages that were exchanged between agents on January 5th and 6th. And now there's a lot of reporting about the degree to which the inspector general at DHS, who was charged with sort of overseeing what happened with the Secret Service and the missing text messages. There's a lot of questions about whether he's fully pursuing that investigation in the way that he should. 
Let me first ask you, we have a tranche of, of, I believe, 800,000 pages of evidence that have been turned over to the January 6th committee in Congress. Are you optimistic that that trove of information as it pertains to the Secret Service will be useful? We know that the text messages are not among the documents that have been given to the committee. I'm hopeful that there will be something that help us, helps us understand what communications were happening that day. Right. The Secret Service, they were right there with the president. They're supposed to defend him from physical harm, not from indictment. So there may be evidence that was that were in the text messages that reaffirm what we already know, that Trump wanted to go to the Capitol and he was prevented, that he wanted to march. So the fact that they were destroyed is greatly disturbing. And if I represent people all the time that if they destroy evidence for something that is surely going to be investigated, they would be prosecuted prosecuted for obstruction. So the issue is, was this done intentionally? Mm -hmm. Was it purely by accident? And if there is evidence that it was intentional or the act of it happening was covered up or somehow uh, kept from Congress or not shown in a way that should have, that is serious. And not only does it interfere with the investigation, but it attacks the integrity of our law enforcement. The hope is this new material helps fill in the blanks. Mm -hmm. We already know a lot about what happened that day. But if we can gain more information of why the Secret Service was so concerned that corroborates evidence we've already seen that has not in any way been conflicted, that shows what Secret Service agents were saying that day, that could be very powerful in a case against the former president. I think one thing for certain is uh, uh, the inspector general's behavior and management of this, Joseph Kafari, this the uh, examination of his behavior and what he has done or not done. That examination is not over, no matter what is revealed in the 800,000 documents that the committee is now reviewing. Barry Burke, who served as chief impeachment counsel to the House of Representatives at, at President Trump's January 6th impeachment trial. We appreciate your expertise and wisdom and thoughts and game plan for all of this, Barry. Still ahead, extremism from groups like the Oath Keepers is not new. As Stuart Rhodes and others face trial for their actions on January 6th, we'll take a look at the misogyny and racism fueling their violent behavior. Law professor Anita Hill will join me live on set for that conversation. But next, a live update on Hurricane Ian as it grows stronger and makes its way toward Florida. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Right now, Hurricane Ian, a Category 3 storm, is churning over the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico, barreling toward Florida's Gulf Coast. Ian is gaining strength and is expected to make landfall on Wednesday as a Category 3 or 4. Early this morning, the hurricane slammed into Cuba, lashing the city of Pinar del Rio with heavy rain and 125-mile-an-hour winds. New tonight, Cuba's electricity provider said the storm has caused the island's power grid to fail, plunging the entire country into darkness. 
Officials expected to be restored in parts of the island overnight and into tomorrow. Meanwhile, Florida is under a state of emergency with about 2.5 million people under some form of evacuation order. On Florida's Gulf Coast, people are stocking up on food and water and other essential supplies as they prepare to ride out the storm. Authorities say Hurricane Ian could leave parts of the state without power for as long as a week. Joining us now is MSNBC meteorologist Bill Karens. Bill, what can we expect from Hurricane Ian over the next 24 hours? We can expect the damage to begin, which it already has, and just get worse tomorrow as the day progresses. This time tomorrow night is when we're going to have thousands of people going in the dark. A lot of damage will be taking place right now, 24 hours. So I just got a report from areas right around Hollywood, Florida. We have a tornado threat from the storm. Uh, a private airport had a bunch of airplanes that were flipped. No one was in them. They were parked. But the tornadoes are a threat during the overnight hours. And the Winds are starting to howl. This is as close as the storm is going to get to Key West. Winds just gusted to 70 miles per hour. So that's about as bad as it's going to get in the Keys. Then we're going to watch these winds increasing. When you wake up tomorrow morning, the winds will be howling from Fort Myers all the way up the coast to Sarasota. And that's where we expect the worst of this to hit. So here's the forecast from the Hurricane Center. The next update comes in at 11 p.m. Eastern. Then the next one after that will be 5 a.m. every six hours. They have that landfall right around 5, 4 in the afternoon, coming on shore somewhere just north of Port Charlotte, Point of Gorda, right around Venice is right here. Inglewood is to the south of there. I wouldn't doubt if they shifted even a little more south. I mean, this forecast just keeps creeping towards you. Fort Myers, Cape Coral, uh, Captiva, all the way down here through beautiful areas around Sanibel Island. And then the storm, as we go throughout you know, all night Wednesday, and then all during the day Thursday, this storm is going to be up here through central Florida, Orlando, uh, the Disney complex. Those areas will have a lot of power outages, trees down. And then even as far as you know, Friday, we're going to watch the storm heading up the coastal areas. And then we have a storm surge to deal with as it makes a second landfall up here by savannah it's not going to be a hurricane by then it's still a tropical storm but regardless it's still going to cause problems this is at least three days in a row we're going to have to deal with this storm the worst thing as far as life-threatening is water it always is with these storms it's not the wind that kills the most people it's the storm surge and the freshwater flooding eight to twelve feet now, we don't know exactly where that's going to occur. It's going to be just south by about 10 to 20 miles, wherever the eye makes landfall. So this is the current forecast. And if it goes up like this, areas from Sarasota to St. Petersburg, you'll have a blowout wind. That wind will actually be clearing out to sea on the north side. But it's that southern onshore wind that will pile up. I'm very concerned with the storm surge from Naples to Manita Springs. And again, Sanibel, Captiva, Fort Myers, uh, maybe even possibly here around Port Charlotte and Charlotte Bay. That's area you have high tide tomorrow as we go throughout 6 p.m. PM. That's right when the highest water levels could be surging. So we're going to add the storm surge 8 to 12 and then another 2 to 3 feet high tide. So that's like way up there somewhere. So that's what we do not want to deal with. And I mentioned some storm surge even there on the Jacksonville coastline. And then finally, the other problem with water, high risk of flash flooding in central Florida. Someone's going to get two feet of rain in that I-4 corridor. This does include you, Tampa, all the way up through Orlando, back up towards Daytona Beach. So, Alex, you get the idea. I mean, it's the wind, it's the water. When you have a major hurricane, you're going to have a billion-dollar weather disaster unless it hits like a totally unpopulated area. This is a highly populated area. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if this ends up being like a $10 billion weather disaster by the time it's all said and done. Terrifying. And it hasn't really even gotten here yet. MSNBC meteorologist Bill Karens. Bill, you are going to be a very busy man in the next 24 hours. Stay strong. Sadly so. We eagerly await your updates. Thanks for everything. Up next here tonight, law professor Anita Hill will join me live in studio to talk about the thing that might be at the root of both restrictions on reproductive freedoms and threats against our democracy. It is not what you think. That's next. Stick around.
When Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes was arrested and charged with seditious conspiracy earlier this year, his estranged wife said she was relieved. Before the insurrection, she says she had spent years directing his violence and rage at her and their children. Tasha Adams spent the past four years trying to sever ties with Rhodes and finalize a divorce. In 2018, she filed for a restraining order saying she was afraid because, quote, whenever Stuart Rhodes is unhappy with my behavior, say I want to leave the house, he doesn't like me to leave, he will draw his handgun, which he always wears, rack the slide, wave it around, and then point it at his own head, telling me my behavior has caused this. I filed for divorce a few days ago, and I'm terrified of his response. Adams filed that after, she says, Rhodes choked their 13-year-old daughter. He only stopped when their son threw him off, according to the son's account to a reporter. Then Rhodes challenged his son to a fight. When Rhodes was finally arrested, not for assaulting and abusing his family, but for attacking the Capitol and assaulting democracy, Adams tweeted this, quote, Some seems, seems like a good time to repost that in the spring of 2018, my request for a protective order slash restraining order against my estranged husband, Stuart Rhodes, was denied because the court didn't believe me when I said he was a threat. That is the man standing trial for seditious conspiracy, the man who helmed an anti-government paramilitary group that provided security for community businesses during some 2020 Black Lives Matter protests, the man who offered to send militia members to Kentucky in defense of the official who denied marriage licenses to same-sex couples, and who offered Oath Keeper services again on January 6th to overturn election results and keep Donald Trump in power. The cost of denying the accounts and experiences of women like Tasha Adams and her children can be steep for everyone. But those denials happen every day, within families and in workplaces and even in courts. Very few people know that better than Anita Hill, professor of social policy, law and women's gender and sexuality studies at Brandeis University. Most of America remembers her for the testimony she gave during the confirmation hearing for Justice Clarence Thomas. She's spent the decades since researching, teaching, and writing about the gender-based violence entrenched in our democratic systems and in our daily lives. Joining us now is Professor Anita Hill, out today with a new paperback version of her book, Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. Professor Hill, thanks for being here today. It's a pleasure to be able to talk with you. Congratulations on your new show. Thank you so much, and thank you for being on this new show. I, I just want to start with this sort of moment we're in in American politics, where you have in particular today, for example, a group of men, the Oath Keepers, whose very existence as a group is based on homophobia, racism, misogyny. You have groups like the Proud Boys, also implicated in January 6th, who call themselves proudly, pardon the pun, Western chauvinists. How and why is this happening so publicly, articulated with pride, with zeal, is it coming as a backlash to, you know, gains we've made in second wave feminism? I mean, what in society, what is the poison among us that has led to groups like this? Well, I think, you know, in terms of patriarchy, you will, you know, there has always been an element of misogyny. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's belong, that's where it lives. Uh, there's an element of racism. Uh, homophobia. We can, you know, all of those things are now coming together. And they're part of this whole long list of white male grievances that we have in this country that have been directed at politics. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I talk about some of the ways that um, misogyny is used to recruit 
people into white supremacist groups, people who may not have white supremacist sentiments, but who have misogynist mm-hmm. sentiments, and they get brought in, and now they not only have the the uh, misogyny, but now they have, you know, they can be comforted and be part of a group and really be trained in white supremacy as well. And, you know, I wrote about it in, in the book because of the gender implications. Yeah. Because it seems to me very clear that this is not going to go away on its own. Mm-hmm. That where we are in this moment when we have these groups very proudly proclaiming this kind of animus toward people who uh, are making progress in this country, who are taking leadership positions, which uh, apparently enrages some of them. Yeah. And it's not going to go away with us ignoring it. Uh, and I think that's what we've done so far. We've sort of put January 6th in one category, and we put misogyny in one category, and racism in another category. And really, there is just this interrelationship between it. And if we aren't studying, if our agencies aren't studying these groups, these extremist groups, with all of that in mind, they're going to be missing the point. Do you see the Dobbs decision? Uh, I'll set Clarence Thomas for a side. <laughs> but do you see the Republican zeal to control a woman's body as an extension of that chauvinism? Obviously, pro-life groups will tell you this is about pro- 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 protecting the sanctity of unborn life. But do you see show- the same sort of chauvinism and misogyny that give ri- gives rise to the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers? Do you see an extension of that in the Dobbs decision and related state abortion bans? You know, I see a lot <laughs> in, in Dobbs. Um, and, and I'm going to go back to 2013 uh, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote uh, just a pair or a phrase in one of her dissents that said that her colleagues, um, on the conservative colleagues on the court, were on this unrestrained course to corral rights um, in this country, civil mm-hmm. rights in this country. And what she was talking about was employment discrimination, specifically racism in employment, as well as, um, as sexual harassment in employment. And what she predicted was basically, if we continue this path, we are going to be setting back precedent yeah. that we have thought was there with protections that we thought were thank you know going to be with us forever yeah and I think what we're seeing with Dobbs is that that is it's part of what she was complaining about this that this is a, uh, a tendency of the the left or excuse me the right part of the conservative part of the court to really um, limit and disrespect the granting of rights, the extension of civil rights. So I don't see Dobbs as separate from uh, removal uh, of protections for sexual harassment in the workplace, for mm-hmm. example. For and that's what the what uh, Ginsburg was complaining about is back in 2013. I just see this as following you know, a pattern that she identified and that will continue. I mean, already in the Dobbs decision and the concurring opinions, uh, Thomas's concurring opinions, he's given you very in every indication that he was willing to hear yes. LGBTQ rights 
put on trial again, same-sex marriage put on trial again. And so we know we have, you know, we've had this message for a while, but I think what we do have in this country is this tendency to try to divide and conquer. Yeah. And so, and, and, and we're, we're trying to divide the, the uh, rights to an abortion from yeah. the many other rights and that you need, and we need to see them all together. Right. It's not a question of the judiciary or the legislature or the gubernatorial races. It's all interlinked. Yes, it is. Professor Anita Hill at Brandeis University, thank you for your time. You are, of course, author of Believing Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence, which is out in paperback today. It's so important to think about these issues holistically. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. That does it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow.